Hello, and thank you for listening to Roots and Wings, a podcast produced by the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth. I'm Jonquil Newland, the director of Kids Central TN. On this episode, we're going to dis- discuss resources available for a specific kind of child caregiver. The grandparents, aunts and uncles, sometimes parents are not always able to care for their children. Maybe the child has been neglected or abused, and in those instances, the child may be placed with a safe and loving relative to help prevent them from getting placed or re-enter the state's foster care system. Living with a relative is important and can lessen any trauma a child may be experiencing while enhancing their sense of belonging. While the goal is to keep children out of the state system, there is one state program that aims to help children and relative caregivers who are enrolled by assisting with resources and support. I'm talking about the Relative Caregivers Program, which is implemented through the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. To help me discuss this topic a little bit further, I'm joined by the Program Coordinator at the Department of Children's Services, Aisha Abu Asaba. Aisha, thank you so much for being a guest on Roots and Wings this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about the Relative Caregiver Program. I appreciate your enthusiasm about it as well. I do want to kind of first start off... um, Who makes up the majority of the population of relative caregivers? Yeah, I'll start off by explaining that we do offer the relative caregiver program in all 95 counties in the state of Tennessee. Uh, With that said, I'd say that the largest percentage of our caregivers are grandparents. Um, But we also do have great grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, and even adult siblings who take in their younger siblings. And that is a a huge choice for any family member to to kind of think about. And we'll talk a little bit about that a little further in in this podcast, hopefully. Uh, I appreciate your answer to that, Aisha, as well. Uh, When is the Relative Caregivers Program most helpful for families? The program can be beneficial to families at any stage of their caretaking role, Uh, I do recommend families reach out to the Relative Caregiver Program as soon as possible, so as soon as they um, have the child in their care, because navigating the changes in their life can become overwhelming. They have things to navigate, such as the school system, the legal system, getting proper documentation to, you know, enroll them into different things, and their medical care, insurance, Anything that encompasses this, uh, if the children were involved in sports, they now have to take on this um, new schedule (laughs) that maybe they didn't have before. Uh, So navigating all of these different things, changing your life around to accommodate all the different changes is where the Relative Caregiver Program can step in and say, hey, here's some guidance. Here are some things that I have in my toolbox that I can provide to you during this time of maybe confusion, maybe there's, you know, struggles and challenges along the way. So that's what we're here to support. Can you talk a little bit about um, more specifically in those resources and supports you just mentioned? What can you give us some examples of what those would be exactly? Yes. So we do actually have support groups at the Relative Caregiver Program. Um, So in addition to just having a one-on-one worker assigned to you to come see you and help you through all of these things, you can actually go to a support group and talk to other people who are experiencing the same things. 
Um, so in that case, you'll learn more about the things that they did to overcome their obstacles. So the actual services that the worker will provide to them will be guidance. They have immense emotional support. That's one of the biggest things that caregivers have on the satisfaction survey is that they have had immense emotional support just from having someone who is kind of a third party come out and they can talk about different things with them. Um, our family advocates, which is what we call them, they're um, kind of like case managers, but we call them family advocates. They are some of the most passionate people that I know. <laughs> and they go above and beyond all the time for their caretakers. They are really knowledgeable about the different resources provided in the community. And they can help refer you to those resources. They will advocate. They will be there for you. They will go to court for you or with you, rather, not for you. But they are extremely knowledgeable about the things in the community that will help benefit this family. And the biggest goal is, like you said, to ensure that the child stays within the family unit and does not interstate's custody, um, you know, just wherever that child is safest. I like the term that you use uh, as a family advocate, um, because I do think, especially through the Department of Children's Services, when you say a caseworker, there's a tone that comes with that as well. Um, do you have an idea, Asia, right now about how many family advocates are actively working throughout the state in all 95 counties? So every region has a different um, number of them just based on the demand and you know how far they might have to travel. So in Davidson County, Davidson is one region by itself, um, but it is a heavily populated county. So they do have quite a few family advocates, but I don't know the exact number. But it's good that every region, obviously, yes. they, they put people where they're needed. And of course, bigger cities have more people specifically. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about um, some of the challenges sometimes that go, go with navigating the rules around being a relative caregiver. Um, there was something somewhat recently in an article, I can't honestly remember, Asia, but they were just talking about the challenges around that. Can you kind of um, touch on that a little bit? Yes. Um, so the rules of being a relative caregiver, um, there's not something specific that says you can only be a caregiver if you meet this criteria. <laughs> um, however, I will say for the relative caregiver program, we do have a criteria to be in the program. Um, and there is an eligibility criteria, a financial eligibility, and you do have to be related through blood marriage or adoption to be in our program. And there are a couple other um, requirements that may come in the future because I'll talk more about this later. We do have a bill that was um, recently passed and it's, it's still kind of being passed, but um, there are a few more requirements for that bill as well. Yeah, well, and, you know, honestly, you took the words right out of my mouth, Asia, because, you know, that was the next question I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because there have been a few pieces of legislation to help support relative caregivers. And I, I would love to know a little bit about how that has changed the policy around uh, both the relative caregiver programs, but just the individuals who apply and become relative caregivers as well. There was a bill passed in Tennessee a few years ago that makes the courts 
make a referral to the relative caregiver program whenever they grant custody to any relatives. So this is really helpful because it allows caregivers the access to services more quickly. And then we just did have a bill passed recently. Um, it is still going through the budget. So it passed in the Senate and the House. It needs to be passed in the budget now. And we are also creating rules. Uh, but once that starts, it will probably be around 2023. But once that starts, it will actually be providing more financial assistance to caregivers on a monthly basis to help with the cost of caring for children that they're taking responsibility for. That's wonderful to hear. I know uh, somewhat recently we did uh, an episode about the child tax credit too, and just and not only that, but we're beginning to see the data coming back from the last couple of years of being able to have those child tax credits and just the ability of trying to lift families and children out of poverty are immense. And I don't want to obviously put poverty with relative caregivers, but obviously any kind of financial assistance when raising children and families is greatly needed, very greatly needed. Uh, what is the vetting process like to become a relative caregiver? You, you mentioned already that you must be blood related to the child, so, but what is there a different kind of vetting process? There are a couple of ways that a person becomes a relative caregiver. If DCS is involved through an investigation and the child is placed with the caregiver, then DCS does some vetting on their side as far as doing a background check, They look at the home, they ensure that this person has not been substantiated for child abuse or neglect, and they ensure that the child will be safe in that home. So that is a vetting process that DCS does when they are placing a child in the home. Another process where someone can become a caregiver is they can file a petition on their own in the child's county of residence in order to establish custody. And in those situations, DCS is not typically involved, so DCS is not able to do that type of vetting process. However, the court will usually ask them questions about, you know, do you have a criminal history, things of that nature. And then lastly, there are many caretakers who have primary care and control of the child, but there is no court order in order to formalize their caretaking role. So oftentimes it's when this child has just been left there um, because the parents just took that upon themselves and said, listen, I I need help, I need your support. Can you please take care of my child or children? And sometimes um, those caretakers have a power of attorney, which is a notarized form signed by the parents. In all of these three scenarios, they can all qualify for the Relative Caregiver Program. So once this child is in the primary care and control of the relative, despite what vetting may or may not have happened, basically our, our process to get you into the program now is to do the financial eligibility, which we are 200% of federal poverty. Um, So there is typically a financial need in the home to qualify. Um, Again, blood marriage or adoption, the the birth parent cannot actually live in the home with you. There are some situations in which we have been able to waive that, um, but typically the birth parent cannot live there. Um, 
And there's just a couple of other things that they'll do. They'll come out with a needs assessment and they'll complete a needs assessment with you and just kind of go over, hey, these are the things that you need, A, B, and C. This is the plan I'm going to work on with you. And then from there, they're going to start their process. Through and, and going back to the Family Advocates Asia, I'm, I am curious on how often um, once they are connected with a family advocate, what is that relationship like? Is it a, a weekly check-in or monthly check-in? What kind of things happen in that relationship? Yeah, so typically it is at least a monthly check-in, if not more. <laughs> there's, there's at least that monthly contact, usually a home visit, um, sometimes it, you know, it doesn't happen at the home because of other circumstances, but usually there's that monthly home visit with the family. Um, beyond that, they have, you know, those support groups that I spoke of, so they'll see them there as well. They have enrichment programs, so they'll have like tickets to a ball game or the zoo or something of that nature, and they'll take everyone out and they'll see them then as well. Um, They send newsletters every month as well, so they can kind of stay connected that way, share resources, any events that are going on. And of course, any time where they need assistance, they can just pick up the phone and call their family advocate and say, hey, you know, I I just lost my job or, you know, my, my electric bill was $300 all of a sudden, you know, I need some help. Absolutely. Are the family advocates the same folks who are also um, caseworkers for DCS? No. So we, the Department of Children's Services contracts out the Relative Caregiver Program to other agencies across the state. Um, So just to name a couple off of the top of my head, it's in Davidson, it's Family and Children's Services. In the east part of the state, it's Omni. Um, So there's just, there's different programs. In Memphis, it is UT who actually has the contract. Um, So we have, we are contracted out with these different agencies. So that's really a a good thing. (laughs) Um, It prevents burnout too, obviously. Right. And a lot of our our families are, I mean, I hate to say this, but they're kind of tired of dealing with DCS at some point. You know, they, they don't want a DCS worker to keep coming to their home after dealing with a full investigation and things of that nature. So it's nice to have someone from the outside come in and say, hey, I'm here as a support and I'm I'm not a DCS worker, but they do have amazing skills, you know, amazing training. Um, they do have the oversight of the department. Um, I do oversee everything that they do. Um, I have a monthly call with all the directors and those are awesome calls. They they share so much amazing information about the things that are going on in their own regions, um, anything that's going well, anything that they find as a barrier, and you know they have a wealth of knowledge. That's good to know, and and it's awesome that they are. They seem or just the way you're speaking about it. They seem very enthusiastic with how the families are doing every time they check in. Absolutely, that's awesome. Uh, and and just in in that regard, having kids in general is a really big decision. So when you take on a family member that you really didn't intend to, obviously birth or um, have in your life in that manner, that's a big big decision. Um, what things should folks know before they consider becoming a relative caregiver if they're approached with that opportunity? 
Yes. Anyone should consider their own ability. So am I able to take care of a child based on my health, based on my financial abilities, based on my residential abilities, based on my parenting abilities? Um, You know, we run into a lot of people who they've not raised children for 20 years (laughs) because they're great-grandparents, you know? Are they... Are they physically able to take care of a newborn? Are they physically able to run after a toddler? Um, You know, these are just some of the things that, unfortunately, they have to be very, you know, real with themselves about because obviously they, they want to be a support to their families. They want to be there for them and prevent that child from coming into custody. But if they just feel like they're in a place where they can't do it, then then they have to kind of make that decision and say, you know, I can't do it. But um, if you haven't raised children in a long time, or if you've never raised children, which we've seen with aunts and uncles, older siblings, things of that nature, definitely consider what it would look like to take a parenting class, or at least joining those support groups that the Relative Caregiver Program offers. Um, Because even if you do feel physically able, medically able, financially able, but you're like, I've never raised kids before, (laughs) you know, what kind of services can we offer you to make you feel a little bit more comfortable? And sometimes that's a parenting class, support group, you know, just having that family advocate involved in general can just be that support to you. Um, So how can we ensure that stability and ensure that permanency? Because it is a different environment right now, even if you have raised children before, it's it's a completely different environment right now to raise children with technology being at the forefront of everything. Um, Absolutely. And with trauma being so prevalent in their lives. There, there really is a lot of research out there, trainings, books, um, really anything that is out there for for caregivers that can help them navigate trauma-informed parenting. Because if if you are, are caring for this child now, they've experienced some kind of trauma, whether it be that their parents have passed away, which during the pandemic, we saw a lot of parents that have passed away. Um, a lot of relatives who have passed away who are already caring for their relative caregivers or children. Um, So whatever the case may be that has led this child to live with you, that child has experienced some sort of trauma. Absolutely. When you you do reach out to potential relative caregivers um, and they do really have to assess and then decide, I just can't do this, do you go to the next family member? Like, what's the step? Because obviously the, the main purpose is to do as much as possible to keep the children out of foster care or out of the state system. How many, how many families members can you reach out to or do on average reach out to, uh, to try and make that happen? Yes. So if it is a situation where DCS is involved through an investigation and, you know, this, the circumstance has become that the child is more safe in a different environment, then we do sit down with a family and basically create what's called a genogram and say, you know, give us everyone you know, <laughs> everyone you trust, everyone who is involved by birth, 
not by birth because we don't have to place um, with a family member because some families don't trust their family, don't have family. Maybe their family lives in Colorado. Some, you know, it's not like an immediate thing that they can get to them. Um, so, you know, we can always place with anyone who you provide to us and who is able to pass that vetting process from, from a DCS perspective. Um, now, from a relative caregiver perspective, they're not usually the ones making that placement decision on the front end. So whoever has the child um, is who the relative caregiver program will work with as long as it's by blood marriage or adoption. Got that. Good to know. Good to know. And I know we touched on this just a little bit earlier, but I wanted to just dive a little deeper because I'm, I'm sure folks, if they're listening to this and they know this might be a situation or an opportunity that they could be approached with, um, I do want to go a little bit more into the financial uh, support that relative caregivers who are enrolled in this program, what do they receive? Yes. So about and <laughs> really, really need uh, because, you know, they have the all the other abilities where they're like, you know, gas is four dollars and 15 cents. And, you know, they're, they're like, we need some help in this area. So we do offer that financial assistance right now to families directly for any needs that they might have. So if they have a bill that needs to be paid, their rent that needs to be paid, food, clothes, beds for the kids, you know, anything that they need that will help support that placement and ensure permanency for the child, we can definitely help them with. And that's why, like I said before, it's really important for families to reach out as soon as possible because a lot of children who come into caregiving homes sometimes come with nothing. Mm -hmm. They don't bring a bed with them. They don't bring clothes with them. You know, they outgrow the clothes that they brought. And having the Relative Caregiver Program there on the front end can definitely help you quickly get those things. Even like carbon monoxide detectors and uh, fire hydrants, car seats, these are things that are needed on the front end of that placement in order to ensure that placement. And we can help you with those things pretty quickly. Aisha, thank you so much for all of this very valuable information. Um, I really do hope that, especially with this new bill going through um, and once it's passed in the budget, I think that's going to be a big boost. I mean, are you guys excited about that with yes. within the program? Yeah. Yes, it has been cherished, celebrated. <laughs> it's really exciting. Do you guys, just in regards to that, uh, do you show up with... At, to your legislators specifically, or how do you guys keep that relationship well and moving forward uh, to be able to benefit the people of Tennessee? I, I'm glad you asked that, actually. A lot of the relative caregiver staff who are on the ground and the directors of it out in all of the regions, they have been amazing at continuing that advocacy um, with their legislators. They have close connections with them. You know, they're their constituents. <laughs> so they're very easily able to say, hey, like, these are the things that I'm doing at my work. And these are the things that I'm seeing in the community and that I want to advocate for. From a central office standpoint at DCS, we have provided data to them because we do collect data from the Relative Caregiver Program. We provide data to them. Um, you know, we provide the same level of advocacy as far as writing up, you know, who that population is. 
how what is their financial need things of that nature and you know we have especially when the bill was being you know going through all of the committees and everything you know we had people from central office down there to talk to the legislators smart uh you know i'm just also thinking of ways to take notes because <laughs> it's it you know the relationships that anybody has with legislators is a it's um it's a pull kind of sometimes <laughs> oh and i will mention that you know i've i've talked about the relative caregiver program to different groups of people you know different professionals different groups in the community and before the bill passed, you know, I would bring up the bill and we were trying to pass it. And those community organizations, those people in the community that I was speaking with, they were very excited about it. They said, can you send us the bill number? We'll go out. We'll call our people. You know, we'll advocate for this as much as we can. So I, it's a little bit of a combination of a grassroots of let's get these organizations to advocate and then on a higher level, let's see what we can do central office, you know, writing this, you know, these policies, this data, getting it out there. So we're kind of hitting them from all sides. And kudos to you, your staff, the family advocates, and to everybody in the community to that help get that passed. I mean, you guys are making a huge difference. Absolutely. If people wanted to learn a little bit more about the Relative Caregiver Program, I know obviously there's places online, but if they wanted to reach you directly, uh, can you? would you mind sharing your contact information? Yes. So we actually do have a hotline for the Relative Caregiver Program. And it's really cool. So we have the hotline number on like posters and all kinds of stuff. So the hotline number is 833-984-1498. And I will answer that call. <laughs> it's it's me. That's I'm the hotline. <laughs> so folks, that she just put her number out there. <laughs> I hope you know, I hope honestly that your your phone gets a little bit more um traffic after this. It just means people are a little bit more interested or just want to know a little bit more knowledge. Um, And of course, folks, I will put that um, hotline number on the description under this episode, but I will also link um, their website, uh, the the DCS website of the Relative Caregiver Program. I'll link that under the episode as well, so you can find more information there if you need it. Aisha, is there anything else that I did not ask that you want to mention or you want our listeners to know about in regards to this wonderful program? Um, Nope. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Aisha, for being a guest on Roots and Wings. And thank you to our listeners. This has been another episode of Roots and Wings. I'm Jonquil Newland.